Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's um, lunchtime. It's uh, 1 p.m. on the West Coast of the United States on August the 17th. I hope you're all having good summers, peaceful summers. Um, as so often in the past on this show, we're going to talk about education and particularly about uh, American universities. I was struck by uh, a, a very disturbing, a, a chilling piece in the Wall Street Journal late last month um, about, I'm quoting the journal's piece, financially hobbled for life, uh, the elite master's degrees that don't pay off. Um, it's, uh, it's a piece about people borrowing huge amounts of money to get master's degrees at places like Columbia University uh, and NYU uh, and um, borrowing a, uh, a medium uh, at NYU of $116,000 and having an annual medium income of $42,000. It's a huge scam, of course, even at the high end with universities like Columbia uh, and New York University preying off the ignorance and insecurity of young people. Um, and there was a follow-up piece today uh, in uh, New York Magazine by William Derasewicz, an old friend and someone who's also been on the show. He, uh, in a piece, asked, what's a, a master's degree really worth? And um, he concludes it's worth less than nothing, essentially. Once again, uh, uh, people are, are being preyed on. They're borrowing huge amounts of money to go to colleges to get degrees, which are increasingly, even at the master's level, worth nothing. Um, so what are we going to do about it? One way, I guess, would be to uh, figure out ways to get scholarships. Uh, the, one of the most popular apps online for figuring out money to go to college is, is, is called Scholly. Um, and I'm quoting its website. Uh, it offers life-changing scholarships made for you. Uh, the, uh, the founder of Scholly has a new book out, Go Where There Is No Path, Stories of Hustle, Grit, Scholarship, and Faith. His name is Christopher Gray. And I'm thrilled that uh, Chris is on the show today. Um, Chris, that was a rather long-winded introduction. Do you agree with me that the university system, to put it politely, is fucked? Uh, yeah, I think that um, I think college costs keep rising, which forces students to take out more and more student debt. And we're starting to see this shift where um, a lot of companies, um, including my own company, are now like hiring people that can prove they have skills um, that may not um, that that may not have a degree, right? So. Um, and I think that I think that that's kind of like how and I think that that's kind of where we're going to move. I think that people are kind of more gravitate to under to needing things like skills training and things like that, even more so than um, in the most of than college degrees. So it, it, it is a bit it is fucked. And, and I think that there needs to be some innovation to help to help tailor it more to actually learning stuff you're going to use. Like who, who uses calculus? <laughs> like, like how many times have you used calculus in your life? So I think they can need some improvement. As I said, your new book is Go yeah. Where There Is No Path, Stories of Hustle, Grit, Scholarship, and Faith. You have a, 
an inspiring story for some, for others perhaps rather depressing in the sense that uh, you, per, you, you were born in Alabama, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, uh, your, your mother was a teenage uh, mother and you had no natural advantages and yet you went to college and you raised a huge amount of money to do so. Um, and that in part is what your book is about. Tell me your story, Christopher, and whether or not it, 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 it could be inspiring for everyone else. Because what I struggle with in the book, it's inspiring about you, of course, but whether you're exceptional and whether most people can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to, to university in America. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from, like you said, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, you know, single mom. She happens to be 14 years old. Um, and, you know, I was a good student. I, went to a, I ended up going to a magnet high school. We had a period of homelessness, but um, I still like had really good grades, test scores, and just all all the things that you know you need to check out the boxes. But of course, you know I just didn't have money to go go to school, um, and student debt was really not something that I, I really wanted to do. So I um, I didn't have the internet at home, so I actually ended up applying to hundreds of different scholarships, some of which are my cell phone. Um, or I had to go to the library, use a computer. We had an hour time limit, so it was really really rough, um, you know. And I had to find ways to hack just really like hack, like I used things to, I saw that a lot of scholarships had the same essay requirements and then I then kept, um, I started using the same, <laughs> reviving the same essays for different scholarships. But I know applying to a ton of scholarships, getting a lot of them, that totaled a million dollars in scholarships. Um, and you know, that was a big part of that ordinary story of like really being able to, to go from like that situation to being that free. And I think the, the purpose of the book isn't really just to tell people to like really follow my path. I think the really the concept of that, hey, when you're facing this, this insurmountable obstacle. How do you how how do you find a, a way to do it? Right. It's really not about that. I want scholarships. More about hey, it's like how I took this 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 situation of not having any other options and really found a way to do that. And even having that as an option, scholarship as an option, and not having the ways to apply for the scholarship, et cetera. How do you make those things work? So I think that's really kind of that inflection point of the book is really for like young people or people who have different adversities or struggles. How can they? Really find a way to where they have a goal and how and how they can creatively find a way to hustle their way to that goal rather than just um, rather than just say okay I can't do it right um, so I think that is the general concept should apply to different different aspects of life. Chris, uh, you know better than me how unfair the American social, cultural, racial system is, and right. strikes me that you are writing and speaking and acting from very much the other side of the track from the dominant elite in America today. Uh, last week, we had the Brown University economist, uh, Emily Oster, who writes books for the upper middle class family on the show. She said, we need to think, or not we, but people from wealthy families need to think of their families like firms, as if they're corporations. Clearly, some people can do that. I guess your 14-year-old mother wasn't able to do that. She probably even wouldn't know how a, a firm operated. We've also had lots of books about how to, to game the system, uh, the university system. Susan Paterno, for example, from Occidental University has a book. We had her on last month. Game on, why college admission is rigged and how to beat the system. These are all books for... The upper middle classes, usually the white upper middle classes, your book is, is not for that class. How unjust do you think America actually is in the way the system, and everyone acknowledges it, even university people, how rigged it is? 
Yeah, you know, I think it's um, it, it is rigged. I mean, I think that that's. I mean, that goes without saying. I mean, I mean, you, you think of all. I mean, so much of what of what you talk about access to college and education, you know, plays a lot of socioeconomic factors play into that. For example, um, standardized tests. Standardized tests are a big key part of like how I mean, getting people access to college. What they make on ACTs or SATs, all that's important. But guess what? The the prep. The, to, to take the test, the um, prep courses and all that are like thousands of dollars. <laughs> so, uh, so it's like, so, so, okay, when you look at people who can't afford that, that's a problem or who are growing up in schools in their environment, they can't focus on studying. But for the most part, they just can't afford the test materials. I mean, you know, the, um, some of the, the cheapest test materials are like hundreds of dollars, right? So the thing is, you have these, you know, people who are upper middle class or middle class, you know, scoring higher on tests and they seem smarter when in reality they just have more resources to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on test prep material and all these different things to prepare for the test. Then you look at then you look at the um then you look at the then you look at the um the concept again of rising of, of rising college costs. You look at that as being something that's really big where you have these people who are lower income have to are forced to take out more student debt. So that means they can't buy a house. It means that they um they have to take care of their um they have to they they don't have to take care of their families, et cetera. And then you look at um, and then you look at college. The same people that complain about affirmative action and all those other things are the same people that get in because of legacy or their parents knew an admissions officer or you know especially for Ivy League schools or their parents wrote a check, right? So a lot of times you know this you know this sense of meritocracy it's really um, it's not really there for when it comes to the college system. It is a lot of uh, based on access and privilege, and I think it's done, and I think it's that way by design. It's you know it's that way to say okay, we legally can't say you know black people can't come here, or we don't want this demographic here, but we can just create systemic ways to keep them out by looking by um with by um by using economic by using economics and other ways that other and putting other obstacles in their way that we know they'll have a hard time um, overcoming. Chris, your your app Scholarly has been promoted by many people. Um, you 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 gained a lot of visibility early on when you were on um, Shark Tank promoting yeah. it. Uh, Oprah Winfrey has pricked it up for people not with a screen. Uh, the, we have a screenshot of um, something from Oprah describing it as the app that helps thousands of students get scholarships. But do you think? And this isn't really a a critique of, of Scully in itself, but um, sort of an observation about the app economy is that you're really just turning America into a giant Las Vegas. There will be a handful of really smart, aggressive, dedicated, um, lucky kids like you who raise a million or a million and a half to go to college, but most people won't. So I'm not saying we don't need Scully, but don't we also need more structural reform of the system? Yeah, I think that you know, so I think 100% scholarships are um, you know are definitely like a lot merit driven and things like that are, are given to certain people. But the thing is, um, you're right. I think that ultimately college costs just have to have has to drop. And I think that I mean the government probably has to intervene or some sort of um, you know some sort of system or alternatives to that to just make it to make it far more. You're going to chill some libertarians, Chris, when you say the government has to intervene. Do you say that maybe? Fees need to be capped. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Bureaucrats need to pay themselves less, or academics need well, to do away with uh, with tenure. What what needs to change? I mean, well, think about it this way: a lot of the reason why colleges can increase the cost of cost because they know that 
federal student loans for the, that you just go and take out more and more federal student loans. So like if you know, so if there's a supply. So those supply. I mean, the, so the supply and demand, the supply and demand economics are the word where they know that students can only get access to a limited amount of funding. There's a there's going to be a limit. There's going to have to be a cap on that price tag. And if that isn't, they're not going to have students. So they're not going to have revenue. Colleges are businesses. <laughs> so it, I mean, and you the only way to the only way to control them and to make them be equitable is to find systemically affect their pockets, which is, you know, but if they know that students have this unlimited source of revenue from them through federal and private student loans, there's no incentive for them to do that, right? You know, that there's just more and more incentive for them to continue to charge more because they know that you can get the money and and they're not really concerned what happens to you when you graduate, right? And you have to pay all the student debt. So so I do think that, you know, there are things that the government can do to to really um to, to really then I think that the universities can make college more affordable, but again, like they aren't incentivized to. They're businesses, right? Like, okay, if I'm making a hundred million dollars right now in revenue, you're telling me to drop my revenue down to sixty million, fifty million, or less than that for what, right? Like, why would I do that if I don't have to? Like, why? Wow, you know, that's just no value in that. Chris, we had the Trinity University scholar, social critic, cultural critic, uh, Devarian Baldwin on the show. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's a very good writer. And he, he argues in his new book that the universities, and I'm quoting him here, are, are plundering our cities. They are essentially colonizing the inner city, particularly okay. poorer neighborhoods. Does that worry you too? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that happens a lot. Um, you know, when, when you're going into these, um, you go into like poor neighborhoods. And I think justification is something that's real. I was actually just in... Harlem again, and right. Both. I was thinking Columbia University in Harlem. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was actually just in Harlem literally like two days ago. Um, I was in New York this weekend for the first time in two years, and it's changing. You know, people. I mean, you know, poor people getting areas of poor areas and and places that are closer to you know Central Park and stuff are being gentrified. So that you know, and and that happens. You know, and I think that that just and you know, we get the housing prices redlining all that stuff. But you know, I think that that you know that just perpetuates that perpetuates. Kind of poverty and um you know and i think that it and it gives people a limited amount of options and force homelessness and other things um you know and openly get people out get people out of those um zones so yeah i don't i don't you know i don't i'm not for that and i think um and i think that you know making neighborhoods better but still making them affordable is definitely something that's i think the, the better solution but again you know that can that, that's a whole pan that's a whole separate conversation and that can open you know pandora's Ma box. many separate conversations yeah. chris uh, we had melinda wenamoyer on the show recently she has a, a new book out how to raise kids who aren't assholes again it's a, a handbook for the elite um but the reality of your book in a way is that you're suggesting that a uh, a child from Birmingham, Alabama, from a 14-year-old mother has to become an arsehole in a sense to get on in America today. That's the reality, isn't it? I think you have to be persistent and you have, you can't take no for an answer. And that comes in different forms, right? You know, if you are, I mean, if you have, you know, if you have the boss that give me microaggressions, you have to, have to see past that. And that's something, you know, I, I've dealt with in my day-to-day -day life. Well, what's you know? a microaggression, Chris? Microaggression is when somebody does something. That may um, that where they're not directly making a reference to your race or gender or sexuality or something like that, but they are subtly. So, for example, if someone says, um, "Oh, well, like you know, people like you know, to me, like if people like you can get in, um, can you know get a scholarship, or people like you can 
can do can do this or or they think you got a job like oh Bill you know like this demographic gets a job whatever they're not saying it directly but they kind of are they're they're making an implication you know so um so I think that those things are are definitely something that people that people have to deal with um and you know and, and that's called we call that a microaggression and those things are real um and I think that those are ways that people can legally protect themselves especially in the workplace uh, <laughs> without you know getting lawsuits. Well, the, the subtitle of your book is Stories of Hustle, Grit, Scholarship, right. and Faith. Um, where did you get your grit? Were you born with it? Mm, one of my, um, I talk about is my um, great-grandmother. Um, even though she wasn't college educated, she just never stopped working. Um, no, that's taking care of children. No, that's taking care of her grandkids, kids. Every, her house was full of everyone. And I think that limitless work ethic to, and, and this is someone who was born in 1929. So, like, there was, right. like, there was literally no she had no choice. Like it wasn't a way like, Oh, I, uh, I could have went to college, but I couldn't. It's like, no, you couldn't <laughs> likely. Right. Like, you know, she was in that time. So, so she had a very jaded view of the world. Um, you know, so I, she had a very jaded view. She's, um, she passed a few years ago, but you know, I think, um, I think that having that limitless potential to, 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 to despite odds to continue to work, to continue to provide for your family too, to make sure everyone was fed and everything like that. To me, that, to me, that fundamental work ethic, that, despite everything that you could have did and where your family could have fell apart to be able to put that together. I think that that was a good, that's a good, you know, role model, good role model for me. And also, I mean, I think ambition is a little inherent and I do think that, you know, that's something that I've always just been driven, whether to get best, to get the best grades or to get into, to go to college or to just achieve. Those are also just, just a bit things. Um, and I think a good book I read, a few years ago, um, the Robert Greene Mastery, um, in one of the um, first, one of the earlier chapters, talks about how basically, like, in, in and we're innately sometimes know who we are, who we want to be, and what we want to be, and though and certain traits like ambition and things like that are somewhat inherent, and and I think that a, a big piece of that, and people I know who've overcome similar situations in mind, they they just they were just always an achiever. They have that, and they have that innate grit in them, um, and I think some people are privileged. They may have ambition, but they really don't have to have as much ambition because a lot is laid out for them. <laughs> like it's just so they can be sometimes mediocre and still be super successful because, you know, they want to start a company. Their dad can just invest a million dollars where they don't have to they don't have to work and their failure is kind of cushioned with uh, with a lot with that. Privilege. And they don't take on student debt. Uh, we had John Hagel, my old friend on. He has a new book out, The Journey Beyond Fear, saying. And I guess he's saying it in, in a similar way to you, except more in sort of he's an older writer, more in business school kind of language, that we need to get beyond fear. Um, how do kids born in the inner city in single family homes with no natural advantages, no money, no, no reference points, uh, no, no, no role models in terms of going to university, how do they overcome fear? How do they like you become gritty how do they become hustlers on the right side of the law you know i think that um i think that for me i for me in back 2009 2010 i read a lot of books so i so success wasn't foreign to me i mean i i what i couldn't see in my physical day-to-day -day environment i immersed myself in books and content um, and that was really important. I saw plenty of stories of people overcome poverty, plenty of stories of people who are successful. I studied finance. I just read a ton of books. Uh, my first job in, um, in college, in high school, uh, was uh, actually at a library, <laughs> the Avondale Library. So I actually used to go to the library a lot all the time so I, to just check out a lot of books and read. And I think these days, I think that people have access to the Internet. 
there's so many, if you're black, you have Afrotech, Black Enterprise, all these other sites that profile like black people doing amazing things all the time. You have social media. Like um, one, one of the things I did and talk about in the book is that I used to reach out to people on like when Facebook first became a thing, how I actually got insights onto the college I want to go to. I reached, I used to add people on, on Facebook who went to the college and I messaged them and they were helpful and they appreciated that, right? So I think that in a digital world, there's a little less excuse for saying your inspiration and your, your, um, and your advice that you can get is limited to what's in your physical environment. Because if we can jump on, if we can jump on Instagram, DM people for all these different things, if you can jump on Clubhouse today, you can jump on a Clubhouse room and literally like talk to people right at this point, right? I think in the digital world, I feel there's a little less excuses where you have so much content that's in, in these people's phases where they can be inspired, um, you know, through what they see virtually or digitally. Um, and, you know, even when they can't, even when they don't have those models in their day-to-day environment, physical environment. Chris, the headlines today are also about Afghanistan, a lot of people losing faith in America and its role in the world and its traditional vision of, of making the world a better place. But it sounds to me like you still believe in America. You still think that the infrastructure is there digitally or otherwise to make something of oneself in spite of all the injustices in the system. I think that there's room for as I think there's room for as many people as possible and i think that um and i and i think that that's unfortunate so i think that you know i think that it's unfair to tell everyone who's stuck in an inner city environment that oh you can be you just work hard because that's that may or may not be the case because there are other there are a lot of other factors that go into that um but i I do believe that there is opportunity um i believe that you know um you know opportunity like i mean people talent you know talent is everywhere opportunity is not Right. So I think that there's a I think America does provide opportunity, uh, a decent amount of opportunity. However, a lot of times those are those people in certain environments aren't, aren't exposed to those opportunities or what's even available to them. So that's the thing. Look at what's going on in the Afghanistan. You know that the people are all over the place about that. And I think that, you know, we I mean, it's it, it's just really important. It's sad that what's what's happening there. And I think that it's like, OK, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you you put your hand, you know, it's like it's like you put your hand in someone's business and then just say, oh, okay, now I'm, you know, going to leave and do all this other stuff. And then now it's like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. Right. So I think, um, I do believe that there's hope in America, but I do believe that, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done politically, government wise, and just systemically. And I think it is, and I, while I appreciate what I've been able to accomplish. I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, I think that it's people, it's my responsibility, um, and other people's responsibility who, who've broken those barriers. Um, to really find ways to democratize their success and find ways to impact as many people as possible. Like, I'm, I'm going to launch a foundation soon, and it will focus on surprise scholarships um, and, and, and grants for small businesses, um, people that, you know, who, are, who don't have access to capital or people who have a great scholarship. So I do think that, I think, there are, I think that one Chris Gray can make a lot of, can hopefully create a lot of other Chris Grays because we have the experience we have the experience and we've been through that to where we can help others. So I think that that, so I see that as my responsibility. And I think that I hope that other people who have went where there's no path and got to the other end of that, they do the same. Chris, you, you, you write quite a lot in the book about you being a, a social entrepreneur and you're very much in favor of social entrepreneurship. How is a social entrepreneur different from a traditional entrepreneur? Um, I think that, the nonprofit model, um, the nonprofit model, unless you're just very, very capitalized, like 
the Knight Foundation or the Gates Foundation or something like that. Um, you know, it, it's a very, it's, it's kind of a, a flaw problem to me. I feel I have known, I know a lot of nonprofits that spend 80, 90% of their time fundraising, 10% of their time on impact um, mm-hmm. because they just have to. Versus Scholarly, we're a profitable company. We've facilitated $100 million in scholarships in five years, and there are nonprofits that are dedicated to scholarships who haven't done that in. <laughs> like, yeah, so so Scholarly is a for profit app or? Yeah, it's a for profit company. Um, we have a free version. We have a paid version, and then we, um, but we actually are eventually, you know, finding ways to just make that free for everyone. But yeah, it's a for-profit company. We make, um, you know, we make a lot of we do. We do a lot of revenue, and we're very profitable. And and but because of we're profitable, because of what we're doing, we're able to help more people. So I think that the thing is, is best creating an impact-driven company that has a strong business model that can sustain itself is and have is far more going to be always far more impactful, in my opinion than like a nonprofit that has to throw five galas every year to raise money and they can make a bunch of rich people feel good about themselves and they're making, in my opinion, minimal impact. Uh, We've had a lot of shows, Chris, about race and racism in America. Earlier this week, we had Jay uh, Chester Johnson, Damaged Heritage, about some terrible race riots in 1919. We had uh, a couple of months ago, Adam Serwer, the New Yorker writer, the cruelty is the point, observing the deep racism in America. How, how optimistic are you about um, overcoming racial injustice in this country? It obviously is something you've experienced growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. And how intimately is this challenge bound up with fixing the problems both of education and of American capitalism? Um, I think that, you know, race is a huge part of just what's going on here. I mean, how optimistic am I been? I think it's going to be generational. I hope, I think there there's progress being made. I think that what happened last year with, with George Floyd and all those other that, I know a lot of opportunity came for a lot of people of color that in the entertainment industry, finance industry, and that's great, like I said. And I hope, again, you know, I, I don't I put like this, you know, I feel like, um, I try to. T- I feel like I have. I take responsibility for my own success. I believe that. I believe that you know you can't. If, if you claim that someone wants to oppress you, you also can't expect them the same person to help you. <laughs> it's like so. So it's like I think that you have to. I feel like for those people of color who are who get in positions of power, who become executives, who sell their companies and all these other things, you there's a degree of control that you have of who gets hired. They're the degree of you control what companies get funded and other what, who get scholarships and all those things. And that's what I encourage, really, because we have control of that. Like, I can control, like, because of Scholarly, how many Chris Grays are produced. I have a degree of control of that, and that's powerful, right? Um, you know, versus just hopefully relying on someone else, you know, to do that. So I do think that, yeah, but I think racism, systemic equality, poverty, all that goes hand in hand. Those, those, that, those statistics, the data shows that. And I think that... Um, I am optimistic that we're making some progress, um, and and I hope that we make more progress. Um, you know, will will I think that racism ever go away? Probably not. I think that that's just I mean that's human nature to for that to be some development. But I do hope that you know with there, with enough economic power um, in, in the hands of people of color that um, you know that balance can be struck where whether someone likes you or doesn't like you, they have to respect you because you're in a position of power um, where they, where you know, where like they either you're their boss or, you know, they need you in some way.
or, or they depending on in some way. And I think that that that's kind of what we have to get to in order to do that. I call it I, my motto. I call it going from black to green, <laughs> where like you know you you know people see your race, but at the same time when you have the economic and capital, the economic and capital, like some people where they like you or not, that respect has to be there because you know you guys are in, they're they're interdependence on each other in that in that regard. Another way of putting it is go where there is no path, make your own path. That's your story, Christopher Gray, go where there is no path. A remarkable um, story, an optimistic story, um, uh, and an uplifting story. Uh, we have so many books which are dark and depressing and critical. So it's good to have a good story, Chris, and it's good to have someone who is such a, a, a calibrated mixture of optimism and, and, and pessimism. It's nice to have uh, somebody who's made it, but is not um, telling everyone else that it's easy to make it. Uh, so people need to read your, your book, which is very autobiographical, but also very interesting in terms of um, inspirational stories of startup life. What else should people be reading, Chris? I know you are in Washington, DC at the moment. You've just moved there. Um, but I know, as you said earlier, books have inspired you all your life, and there are one or two books that have been particularly inspirational. Um, Mac and Glowell's Outliers, which I think is really important because I've always saw myself as an outlier, and um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Those are two formative books that I actually read um, every, when I was a lot younger um, that was really formative. Um, to- and, and The Habits is by uh, what, uh, Covey, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yep. What, should, what should people get out of those? Two books. Um, I mean, outliers is really understanding the concept of how the world works, understanding that how what an outlier is and, and how and really looking at yourself and understanding and then striking that balance of what what like basically like what's the norm and, and how a lot of different set of circumstances, what good or bad can determine where someone ends up, whether you're Bill Gates or whether you're me or or someone on the street. I think that's really important because it put it sets your perspective in the world and makes you and makes you understand where your place is and how you and how you navigate the world. And Seth Happens Highly Effective People, I think is just a classic. I think like it, it really like helps put you in the right mindset to really um, develop the right habits and um, you know, that get to too granular um, that, you know, that 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 really was foreign to me, especially being in an environment where like you have a lot of diff- different values being trying to be instilled in you. <laughs> so it's good to have like, you know, have, you know, some of that kind of point in the right mindset. And also when I was a teenager, I actually read the set in high school, I read the seven half highly effective teens. <laughs> so that's what actually prompted me to read the, the seven half highly effective people when I got older in college or later in college. Well, there you have it. Go where there is no path. Uh, Chris Gray's new book. Um, keep hustling, Chris. Remain gritful, if there's such a word. Uh, you're an inspiring story, and um, and and Scully is an in, inspiring narrative, and I think a useful app. So congratulations on all that. Keep well and keep reading, keep believing, and we'll have you on the show in the again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. All right, bye.